What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Come on, people, my brothers and sisters. Don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Listen, it, it was me. I, I sent you all those gifts. I, I've had a long week. I haven't been thinking straight. Heck, I was just doing Mr. McMahon what I thought he would want me to do. But man to man, I swear to you, Mr. McMahon had nothing to do with this. And all I can say right now is, I'm sorry. Let me make myself clear. At WrestleMania, Stone Cold Steve Austin in this ring is in charge. So what I say goes. If you get a Bobby Lashley in this corner and he's on Umaga and he won't break at the five count, don't think that I won't hook that bitch by his eye and drag him right back in the middle of the ring. Now, I ain't going to pull a man's eye out. It's going to bother him a little bit, but I, I just want to make, make sure he gets my drift. At WrestleMania, I'm the man. What I say goes. Don't mess with me in this ring. By the same token, don't mess with me outside the ring. Do I make myself clear? Absolutely. 100%. But Stone Cold, one, 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 one more thing. I've never really understood why Mr. McMahon and Donald Trump are so worked up over losing their hair. Because you and I both prove every single day that if you can pull it off, my friend, bald is beautiful.
WrestleMania. As bold as a cue ball. <laughs> this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Brought to you today and powered by the icons of wrestling. This coming Saturday down at the ECW Arena, now known as the 2300 Arena, another edition of the Icons of Wrestling Collector Fest comes to you directly from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with a host of extreme icons and professional wrestling legends, including not just the two-man power trip of wrestling, but our guest, our co-host of franchise, Shane Douglas, the Sandman, Mikey Whipwreck, and the new effing show, Jerry Lynn, all coming to the Icons of Wrestling at the 2300 Arena this coming Saturday. Head on over to our Facebook page right now and check out all the information on the Icons of Wrestling this coming Saturday at the 2300 Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's going to be one hell of an extreme day down at the old arena and if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined here on the two-man power trip by my tag team partner the one and only john paz and if you can't tell by the music you're just hearing as this intro's beginning if you don't know from hearing the last couple episodes we are in episode number 316 of the two-man power trip so it made it very fitting that our guest today jonathan coachman had a very heavy tie into 316 himself stone cold steve austin so a little tip of the cap to the great steve austin he would have been an excellent 316 guest but you never know i know he could be 317 for all we know but i digress we'll move forward hopefully Good old Stone Cold will be down the line at some point, but he is going to be a huge topic on today's episode here with Jonathan Coachman. What an awesome, awesome chat you have to look forward to today. It's hilarious. It's informative, and there's a lot of stuff that's told that you have never heard before and the coach has never told before. So this is one you are going to want to be glued to your speakers while you listen to. And obviously with Jonathan Coachman, we know he moved out of the WWE and over to ESPN and then took a pretty prominent role being like the wrestling spokesman for ESPN and hosting the ESPN wrestling segment every week that for a time about a year ago was really breaking some of the biggest news that the WWE had going on was always coming through the mouth of Jonathan Coachman and to the ESPN airwaves. So now if you remember that, you'd also remember that Jonathan Coachman was a huge part of the WWE television landscape for the good part of about six years where he transitioned from being just a backstage announcer all the way into becoming a play-by-play announcer and also an on-air character. And I say six years because he was there much longer, but we're talking from when the coach turned heel in 2003 through when he left the WWE. I mean, this guy was a major, major part of every WWE main storyline. He was involved with all the main players, whether he's wrestling Ric Flair or he's wrestling, uh, a, you know, a DX or he's wrestling uh, JR with Steve Austin involved. There's always big matches that the coach was involved in, and we're going to hear so much about those today in this hilarious, hilarious chat with the coach. Now, 
One thing I think we can kind of talk about with the coach is he was so diverse. And like I said, just started off as a backstage interviewer and really blossomed into that on-air role. And we'll hear what some of the finer points to that transition were, whether it was what he had to work on or whether it was some advice that he got from people he was working with. But I think one of the cool things you'll take away from this is his relationship with Vince McMahon and how close that they worked together, especially with Vince producing him as an announcer, but then co-starring with him in a lot of the segments that they did backstage. And we'll kind of get the dynamic of what the relationship between Jonathan Coachman and Vince McMahon really, really was. But I don't want to really give too much more away. I want to welcome John in now. And John, with this interview, there's so much to cover. But I know with your fine-tooth comb that you've got over there, why don't you pick out some of the finer points and tell us some of the things that we have to look forward to today in this hilarious interview with the coach, Jonathan Coachman. Yes, Chad, back here again at the two-man power trip of wrestling and back with a bang, baby, because this time it's the coach, Jonathan Coachman, joining the show. What an unbelievable interview he was. Just what a great time we had with him. And now with some of these interviews, you just sit back and you kind of just have an expectation. Whoever it is, you know, whether it is the Destroyer, whether it is the coach, whether it is Heath Slater, Ted DiBiase, whoever we've had on recently or whoever we've ever had on, there's always a kind of expectation that me and Chad and, you know, we have going in to the interview and thinking like, wow, this is going to be really good. And with the coach, this one was like, we went in we're like, this is going to be awesome. We, we love the coach. This is just going to be one of those amazing interviews that we're just going to have a great time we're going to click with them right off the bat and somehow some way very rarely did this happen this over exceeded our expectations and it was actually turned out better of an interview than we even thought he was just unbelievable the stories he gave the openness the honestness he was just an open book with some great stories going all the way back to his debut in the WWF then, of course, now the WWE. So we get some great stories on Vince McMahon. We get some unbelievable stories about The Rock and their chemistry. And for you know, for some reason, The Rock would always put him over, whether the fans realize it or not, superly put him over huge. And we get the story on why and why they connected so well and really what was it about their chemistry that really came off so well together so that was just some awesome stuff and of course you got to talk about stone cold steve austin and his feud with steve austin and his time interviewing steve austin just a lot of good uh, steve austin stories from the coach and of course a very very rare story that i have quite frankly never heard before and he does tell us a few times in this interview that he's never revealed some of these stories so we feel completely honored that he was open enough and liked us enough to share some of this stuff and one of those main stories was chris benoit and what about benoit benoit basically helped him train in the wrestling business when coach was becoming that quote-unquote sometimes wrestler and and doing his thing as a wrestler who was training him and who was you know giving him pointers and how was he getting good and how was he getting serviceable in the ring and we get some great stories about how it was chris and benoit the whole time bringing them along teaching them the ropes teaching them how to work whether it be before a show after a show always giving him time whether it be um, driving in the car giving him advice whether it be in the ring before the show starts showing him you know some bumps and things like that it's just unbelievable story there and it's just one that i never heard so you're really going to enjoy that obviously any story from the attitude era you're probably going to enjoy and the coach did play a big part in the attitude era and was a big part 
of professional wrestling for a very long time as he spent 10 years in the WWE. So sit back, relax, and enjoy just an unbelievable interview with the coach himself, Jonathan Coachman. Absolutely. Great point about the Chris Benoit story because I even had to do a double take at the uh, the recorder there when he said that because it was just so surprising because you just didn't think that a guy like Benoit, a guy like the coach, you know, one really serious guy and then one very fun-loving and, and very loose guy would get together and really Benoit showed on the ropes and it's a fascinating, fascinating story. So take a listen to that. There's so much to cover in this episode. I really think a hardcore WWE fan will really enjoy it because the coach had so many cool moments and really no topic was off limits. So if there's something you've ever been wondering about with the coach, we pretty much covered everything there was and there's non-stop laughter and just a lot of laughs and a lot of good time in this interview so sit back relax and enjoy the coach and of course it's episode number 316 because the two-man power trip said so so how you like that one stone cold just uh in case he ever heard this which i doubt he ever would or probably even know who we are Please don't tell him that I mocked him, please. But with all that being said, if you have the ability to do so, get down to the ECW Arena, now known as the 2300 Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, this Saturday, and join us with an extreme host of legends, including our co-hosts on the Triple Threat Podcast, Shane Douglas, the Sandman, Jerry Lynn, and good old Mikey Whipwreck as we spend a day in the house that they built, the Extreme heaven that is the ecw arena as we talk about some great memories relive some magical moments and take in some hardcore fans of not just ecw but professional wrestling it's always probably one of the best wrestling conventions you can go to it's the icons of wrestling and it is this saturday in philadelphia pennsylvania and like i said earlier get on over to our facebook page which is facebook.com slash tmpt of wrestling for more information if you can join us we'd love to have you and also for those who haven't had a chance to listen to the triple threat podcast this week i wasn't able to join it i was very under the weather while the recording of the show went down so it was shane and john doing a little two-man power trip of themselves on the Triple Threat Podcast. A lot of cool topics covered, including what happened with Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens, and if Shane has ever experienced that in his professional wrestling career, any instances where he might have not gone with the creative route and kind of went into business for himself, as well as covering Impact Wrestling, possibly paying people to attend the Impact tapings in Canada, Shane, of course, has his uncensored take on the entire thing, as well as a lot of the current events going on in the world with the Hollywood sex scandal and accusations getting thrown out there on a daily basis. So tune in to this week's Triple Threat podcast. And if you want to submit any questions to that show, please send them to the triple threat pod at gmail.com. Again, it's the triple threat pod at gmail.com. We make room on every single show to answer a couple questions from the mailbag, the ask franchise, anything mailbag every single week. So please get them on over to us right now. But speaking of getting on over to things, John, I'm going to hand it over to you, hit him with a little bit of two man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to Jonathan Coachman. Now for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at two man power trip and at wrestling pal. 
Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Telly Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former ESPN sportscaster. You may know him from his time in the WWE as an announcer. As a backstage interviewer and as a sometimes wrestler, he is the legendary, the iconic, he is the coach, Jonathan Coachman. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. 
It's one of the better intros, gentlemen, that I've ever gotten. Not the best, but one of the better. And when you call me a sometimes wrestler, uh, that is being kind. Because I never like to to, uh, insult the actual full-time guy. So I'm glad you called me a sometimes wrestler. But an all-time loser is what I was. (laughs) Coach, if you look at your resume of guys you've actually stood across the ring from, I mean, it rivals some of the main event talents at the WWE, (laughs) so I'm not going to be shy in calling you a sometimes wrestler. Well, thank you. It's funny, I was actually talking to a friend the other day, and, and, you know, there's all these different Twitter handles that put out there 12 years ago today, 11 years ago today, and I forget sometimes that I had, two tables matches with John Cena that I was, had a pay-per-view match with Batista, who now is a big movie star. And, and you know, I was in there with the rock several times uh, late in my career. So uh, I'm, I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of the fact that I was able to walk away every single time. <laughs> and, and you're forgetting a big one, stone cold coach. We're, we're completely uh, glancing over that. I, I still think that I have taken the greatest stunner, in the history of the WWE. And I, I would put my stunner up against anybody. <laughs> That's a pretty good call. Yeah, that uh, that feud where uh, basically, I don't know, are you, was this during the actual the Taboo Tuesday feud or just while you were getting beat up every week by Austin? Uh, well, it was supposed to end at the Taboo Tuesday pay-per-view, and it didn't actually happen. So I ended up taking on Batista, which was a, a good fill-in at the time. But, yeah, me and Stone Cold, we had our issues. And if people remember back in 2003, the night that, um, that I guess, turned heel or went from just being an announcer to getting in the ring, um, I, I was helping out Eric Bischoff, and I took a chair to Shane McMahon, and then Stone Cold Steve Austin came out, and I got kicked in the kidneys so hard that I couldn't breathe for 20 or 30 seconds. And I really thought potentially my career was going to end that night because it was so painful. So Stone Cold has been the – uh, deliverer of one of the hardest shots I've ever taken, uh, not just in the ring, but in my life. Oh, my gosh. I can't even – I'm not even going to remotely say I can imagine because that's, uh, that's <laughs> unbelievable. And, Stan, you, the fact that you can walk today uh, is a miracle. But, you know, when we saw you come on the scene in the WWF in, uh, I guess it was the early, early 2000 uh, era, yeah. you know – we just saw you as a mild-mannered uh, backstage announcer, and then we saw you kind of mature into the commentary booth, and then obviously it went on to you know blossom, and you became an, a, a regular on-air character. But when you got there and you got to be an announcer, you know what was that process like as you're trying out to be a WWF backstage announcer? Oh, well, it's funny because I was you know almost fresh right out of college. I was very young in my twenty early twenties. And I, I kind of got my job in a, in a very weird way that uh, I was in the building when Owen Hart tragically fell from the rafters and to his death in Kansas City in 1999. And that's how I became introduced to people from the company because I was on all these different shows, Good Morning America, Larry King Live. And the very first SmackDown just happened to be booked in Kansas City three months after that. So they called and said, hey, you know, we, we're, we're having a hard time selling tickets because people – uh, obviously are traumatized from what happened to Owen Hart, would you do a story with Shawn Michaels to help us out a little bit? Because I was fair to them on all my interviews. So that's how I met the, the senior VP who ultimately called Vince McMahon and, and Kevin Dunn, who was my boss for 10 years, and and got me to come out the very next week. So it was a very, very quick process. 
and I was hired on the spot. And what few people uh, know, because I don't, I don't know that I've ever told this part of the story, but I still had a couple of hours to kill before I went back to the airport to fly back to Kansas City where I was living at the time. And so I went over to work out. And I walk into the WWE gym, and there's only two people in there, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Deborah. And many people remember that they started a, a real-life love affair, and I was actually there for the beginning of it, and I saw the beginning of it. Now, I never told anybody because I didn't want to be the new guy spreading rumors, but it was very intimidating being in the gym with just me, Stone Cold, uh, and Deborah. And then I began the job a few months later, and, and I guess the rest is history. Yeah, absolute history. And referencing that first SmackDown, that was a big deal because it was the return to the Kemper Arena after the tragic death of Owen Hart. And for yeah. being the pilot, that was a kind of a one-shot on UPN before they uh, they started it off. That was a really big deal. But to hear all that that came afterwards, it's got to be a lot of pressure coming through the door and seeing that right off the bat and coming in at a time when the company was at its hottest but also really suffering its probably biggest PR uh, hit with the death of Owen Hart. I, w- I was very lucky, guys, that, that when I was hired in August of 99, uh, my station in Kansas City, and it, it was a process, and, and, and when you're you know, 22, 23 years old, and you don't know if you're going or not, and it, as you said, the company was red hot. So to get that offer at that age, I was like, wow, I'm going to be able to travel the world and, and on somebody else's dime and perform with uh, some of the guys. I was a huge wrestling fan on top of everything else. And so I didn't know if I was going to go or not. So when the, when the deal got done, and they actually bought me out of my contract in Kansas City, but the caveat was I, w- I was the Kansas City Chiefs reporter. I was the guy that had to travel with the team. So the deal was that I would travel to Raw and SmackDown on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then I would work in Kansas City Wednesday through Sunday. But I couldn't be on the air with wrestling until I was done with the football season. So I had four months of traveling and getting to know people, getting to know the guys, getting to know the business, before I had to worry about being on the air. And that was a big benefit for me. So when I started on the air, I already knew everybody because I'd been traveling with them for a long time. But it was still very, very um, uh, nerve-wracking because the WWE restaurant was being built, and I happened to be there. Uh, Howard Finkel, the legendary announcer, he was late. That was January 2000. So I'm brand new. Nobody knows who I am. 20,000 people, Times Square, New York City, and I'm walking up on a 10-foot platform announcing The Rock in the first limousine. That's very nerve-wracking. And those are the type of things that I – I came to absolutely love getting to do. And to be honest with you, I miss performing in that environment because it became home. Uh, I got to do, as you've already alluded to, so many different things. And and I have over the years missed uh, the performing side of it, sure. Yeah, and like I said, too, you know, you blossomed into that because we just saw you originally as the straight man backstage. Yeah. And- Obviously, as your interactions would go on and guys would get more comfortable with you, we saw the comedic stuff start to kind of sift their, you know, its way in. But at the time, you know, you had Kevin Kelly was backstage, Michael Cole was still in the backstage interview role and going to be transitioning towards the broadcast booth. So who's the guy that they pair you with and kind of get your feet wet and and have him kind of mentor you as you're starting to kind of get your chops uh, into the interviewing game backstage? Well, there's a lot of fans that, you know, are, are even too young to remember back then. But 
uh, Michael Cole is still around. And I'll, I'll never forget that the day uh, that I showed up, that I could actually do work, uh, Michael Cole walked up to me and said, here you go. And he, he was doing eight to ten shows because back then we did shows for 160 countries. We did shows on USA for Saturday morning called Livewire. We did shows called Metal and Jacked and all these different shows that we thought, this is the way to go. Let's inundate everybody with as much wrestling as possible. So Michael Cole was the guy that said, you can have all this stuff, and I'm going to be the voice of SmackDown. And him and I traveled together for two or three years because when I, when I started, we had to go to Raw and SmackDown. And then when I started being a character, I stopped writing with him, and I started writing with uh, the Hurricane and Christian to all the different house shows over the weekend. But I, I was always infatuated with doing more than just being a backstage announcer. And I knew I had the physical uh, size and the ability and the toughness to, to do more than just hold a microphone backstage. And so I was never happy just doing that, but I knew that was part of the deal. And certainly as I started, that that's what Vince wanted me to do. But he was never happy with the fact that I was six three and a half and taller and bigger than a lot of the guys. And Michael Cole is much smaller than I am. And he likes his announcers being smaller, which is the biggest reason why ultimately Vince decided if Coach will do this, let's make him a character and have him be in the ring as opposed to holding a microphone in the back. And I got to say that that is almost like the template that they put together for what would later be in NXT, the different folks that they would try out in a backstage interviewing position and then also into the commentary booth because there's a couple guys that don't necessarily fit the traditional backstage interviewer persona or, uh, I don't know, uh, body type or whatever. You actually have big guys back there interviewing guys, and you would really be the first. But before we saw you, you kind of go with the shaved head. You went with the goatee. You know, you like I said, I, and I'm not trying to be, you were the mild-mannered backstage interviewer, and it was comforting as an old-school fan to have a straight man back there. But when you started to work your personality in, I'm sure for you, it was like Pandora's box opening. So as we've heard so many stories, was there anybody that saw this backstage and decided we got to start bringing the coach out of Jonathan Coachman? Well, I think, I think it just kind of evolved uh, during my different – um, and I, I look at some of the clothes that I wore back then. I'm like, wow, and you know, you know, the jeans and the colored shirt, and then we'd ultimately go to the the, the suit and tie. But when I started doing the stuff with the Rock and the and the timing, and and that's what people bring up the most is is all those different interviews and the different uh, ways that he made fun of me. And yeah, he made fun of me, but I had to have the timing for him to make it funny to allow him to shine. And I was happy to do that because he is, without question, in my mind, the the most talented uh, star that the business has ever seen. So to be allowed to be with him so much, uh, and then people started saying, wow, well, if Coach can do this and Coach can talk, then maybe he can develop into a heel that will be believable. And that's exactly what we did. I became so incredibly annoying and – people really wanted to see me get my ass kicked. And I think going forward, because that is part of my personality, but I am a, a what I think a really good dude, a really nice guy. And I like to see people succeed. But it is fun to be that, that alter ego. And I think if I was to ever perform again, 
that I would be somewhere uh, in between. I wouldn't be a straight man. I wouldn't be uh, completely goofy, but I would be, you know, a serious, uh, a serious threat to some people, I think. There's so many moments that I could just think of off the top of my head that, you know, I, I just I start <laughs> laughing, whether it's uh, the mist coming through the door from Tajiri or oh. uh, some of the uh, – some of the stunts, I want to get to that in a minute, but the one thing I want to kind of hit here is, you know, we just mentioned Michael Cole and that he was a backstage interviewer, and obviously Michael Cole would become a pretty important on-air heel later on in his run. Dare yeah. say, not copying the, the style that was given to the coach, because <laughs> he was, you know, at the time you were, you know, you, were, you, you had a great spot, but when you had that heel turn, obviously, you know, that Michael Cole heel run, kind of reminiscent of what happened with the coach about six years earlier. Yeah, it, it, and I was, uh, to be honest, I was a little shocked that Michael Cole decided to do that. And and I understand that when you're with, uh, when you're doing anything for a long period of time, guys, you want to have a, a change of pace. You want to do something else. And there is a certain respect level that comes with being willing to do the physical stuff because you're, you're honestly putting your physical well-being on the line. And even from the boys' perspective, when you're willing to get in the ring and do those sorts of things, you get that respect at a higher level. And I think that's one of the reasons that Michael Cole decided to do that. And I think it was fun for him. And I think there's, there's millions of fans out there that, that would love to have the opportunity to do that. So I was glad to see that, that he did it. But it, it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to get the respect of the boys when you decide to do it. And I took a lot of ass whoopings to gain their respect. But I, I can say that when I would show up to any show and I would get booked in, in either a match or a physical altercation, that nobody blinked an eye at it after a while. And I was proud of that. And I think to, to a certain extent, uh, Michael Cole got to that point just in a different way because he was never physically imposing. And it didn't make sense for him to stand face to face with The Rock like it did with me because we're the same height. So it was just a different way, but I certainly respect Michael for what he did. It was uh it was very head scratching at the time, but now you can look back and appreciate all the uh, the effort that Michael Cole put into it. But <laughs> kind of channeling back to what we were talking about about when you first got in in, in early 2000. So you you're in Times Square, you're at the launch of the restaurant. Obviously the Royal Rumble that year was huge. WrestleMania 2000, the all-day broadcast, that was huge. But do you kind of see any parallels between that unbelievably hot era of wrestling and the uh, pop culture uh, press and the pop culture response now to professional wrestling? More, I would say now they're kind of looking more towards the 80s and into the early 90s, but do you see parallels between the popularity of the early 2000s and somewhat now? I think that what people need to understand is sports entertainment, WWE, uh, it's, it's a – it's a product that never goes away. So if you're a fan of um, NCIS, uh, you have a chance to miss it. They have a chance to make it right. And then you have a chance to enjoy it for a certain part of the year. So it's a, slick, a cyclical thing that you never have a chance for it to go away. So you're constantly having to reinvent yourself, but you're reinventing yourself as you're still doing live shows. And I, I think that's what wrestling fans don't understand, especially the ones that choose to complain and say, ah, oh, it's not good right now. And, oh, I love it now. So parallels, I'm not so sure. I think what they figured out is 
they're going through an era where there's a lot of good characters. There's a lot of good in-ring technicians. They figured out uh, that NXT is red hot, so you ride that. And then when you bring an NXT star onto the main roster, they already have a background and they already have a fan base. So that's what ultimately you're trying to do because it's that rare business, guys, that uh, never goes to bed. And that was one of the reasons why after 10 years I knew I had to get out at the time because it never stops. You, you know, when, when I got married, I'm, I'm now divorced, but when I got married, I could only miss one Monday. And that's the only Monday I missed in 10 years of being there. I missed one Monday Night Raw. That's insanity. If I ever went back today, you best believe I'm taking two or three off a year, not one in 10 years. So I, I think that's what people need to remember, that what you loved about that was an era where there was you know 10 to 15 main event stars. So you could come and go. You could mix and match and have all these different guys. I think that's what you're having right now, and they're figuring out how to do this business with millennials, uh, with contemporaries, with social media, and utilizing social media to their advantage. And that's something every company has to do, but especially when your content and your talent are stars that people watch every single week, sometimes two times a week. Now, you mentioned most people, when, when they see you or when they want to talk to you or maybe reach out to you on social media, they're probably mentioning to you maybe your backstage announcing time, talking about the times with The Rock. So I just got to ask you, what was it like with the chemistry with The Rock? Because it's, it's just funny that, you know, you're the straight guy, he's doing all the funny stuff, but the, you could just tell there was a certain chemistry with you guys. There was something, you know, he got interviewed by Kevin Kelly, you know, he called him a Hermie, but there was something with you in him that always seemed to, like, I don't know, it would bring out the best in him. It was so entertaining, whether it was a Charleston or whatever. What was it you <laughs> Um. I, th- I think what it is, and and this is probably – I have two favorite stories with The Rock, and they happened at the beginning, the very first night, and they happened at the end. And I think it set the tone and also led to the respect that, that him and I have for each other even today. And the very first night that I was allowed on the air, and, of course, nobody knew, knows who I am, and, and wrestling fans are incredibly fickle and demanding and, and get off the stage. We don't know who, who the hell you are. And so Rock was already an incredibly huge star, and he already had all the sayings that, that he had. It doesn't matter, you know, Rudy Pook, all that kind of stuff. So he comes up to me the first night, and obviously I'm, I'm excited, I'm nervous. It's going to be me and him. He goes, hey, I've got an idea. And this is what people need to understand about The Rock, is that he's incredibly giving. Does he have an ego? Well, of course he does. He's now the biggest movie star in the world. Back then, the biggest wrestling star in the world. Anybody would have a big ego. You have to to get to that level. But he respects people, and he wants you to do well if you respect him. So to answer your question, he knew that I respected him. He knew that I was an athlete. He knew that I was in it for the long haul. So he said to me, I've got an idea. I don't want people to think that you're stupid. And I've already done the it doesn't matter so many times. Let's try this. Where you ask me a question. So here's exactly how it went. I said, hey, Rock, put his hand up who in the blue hell are you? And I don't answer. Like everybody had done before, Kevin Kelly, Michael Cole, whoever else, and he just made fun of. He goes, it's all right. You can tell The Rock. And so so I said, well, you know, my name's Jonathan Coachman, but everybody just calls me the coach. And he says, the coach? The coach of what? The coach of a little girl's softball team? The coach of this? The coach of that? And they're all very funny lines, but he said the coach, 
at least ten times. So then at the end, he says, why do they call you the coach? And now I'm comfortable. And I said, well, it's a funny. It doesn't matter why they call you the coach. And that was my first interaction. And so when we walked out of the building that night in Chicago, everybody back there was, coach, 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 coach. It took one interview, and The Rock saying my name ten times, and the fans didn't even realize what he was doing. It's all a psychological game. And you have to play with the fans to make them believe and buy into what you're selling. And from that moment, I not only was grateful to him because I was the coach from night one, and then you fast forward to 2007, I think it was, and Rock was in L.A., and he says, I want to come back, and me and Eugene were having our feud, and I cut what I thought was one of the best promos of my life, and the Rock calls and says, I want to do something with these two guys, and we snuck him into the building in San Diego, and it's still one of the things I go back and watch sometimes. And for some reason, guys, I forgot to shave my head that night. And when I watched this great 22-minute segment, all I can think of is how nappy my hair looks. But I digress. What <laughs> happened was the Rock comes out. I, I yell at Eugene. He backs up. And still to this day, the only time I've ever come out of character in the ring because 20,000 people in San Diego had no idea the Rock was there. They hit his music. He comes out. Eugene goes nuts. He comes down to the ring. And for the first time in my career – I was allowed to talk back to The Rock. And again, that was his idea. So he respected me enough to allow me to go back at him nine or ten years after we had done that very first night. So to answer, that's a long-winded answer, and I apologize for that, but I wanted you to understand where the respect factor from both sides of the fence uh, came from, and we knew that we had each other's back, and I wanted to see him do as well, if not better, than any of our big stars. Tremendous answer. I, I love it. Anytime we can get a good coach story and a good rock story mixed in, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Obviously, there's there's just so much chemistry there, so many good stories, obviously those two. And then, of course, like I kind of alluded to a little bit, then, the, you know, he has you doing the Charleston or whatever, and you're not, you know, not paying attention, kicks you in the ass, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Are you guys, like, collaborating on stuff, or is he giving you stuff? Like, how does that actually work? Well, the thing about, about Rock is he's very creative, and I like to pride myself on being a creative guy. That's, that's been one of my frustrations over the year at ESPN is that uh, they just don't have a lot of people that understand the talent that people that go through the WWE have, and they're just like, well, you're just this, and that's all you're ever going to be. And when you have a character in the WWE, you can only go as far as you're willing to take yourself. So Rock had this incredibly good writer, that they had chemistry, and that guy is still working with Rock's production company to this day. So you're talking about a nearly 20-year relationship of a guy who came in as a young kid out of college, Rock liked him, he wrote good stuff for him, and then they worked together. Then I would walk into the process, and I'd be like, here's how I think I can add to it. And that's how the collaboration process would work. And it would just be the three of us, in the corner of a room and then he would go and work out eat his five chicken breasts and you know we would hopefully knock him dead that night but i the rock never had a minute to breathe he he always every part of his day was spoken for but you can't fault somebody for going to the gym for an hour and a half when you look like him so he was one of the few that Vince was like do your thing because i know when the red light comes on you're going to be ready and eating nutrition working out 
That was part of being the rock. You can't be the rock unless you look like a rock. And that's what I loved about him. From the minute he walked in to the minute he left the building, he was all business, and he delivered every single time. When you're collaborating with him, are you coming up with some ideas and they're accepting your ideas, or is it kind of is it, or is it harder because of Brian Gowers and The Rock? Would it be harder to almost get your idea out there, or is he very um, you know very open with you guys and, and forthcoming? Oh, he, he was very open, uh, but re- remember the the Rock. You're, you're talking about arguably the biggest star in the history of the business, and you could argue Hulk, you could argue Stone Cold. So let's say one of the three. So one of the three in the entire history of the business. So as as the guy who's being allowed to be a part of it, you only really speak up if you really think you have a really, really good idea. Now, as time went on, they trusted me more and more because we had so many of these magical segments together. And, you know, it was kind of my idea at WrestleMania in Toronto for me to drop to my knees, you know, and, and say, say my prayers and that I ate my vitamins. That was my idea to do that. And it turned out being being great. People have brought that up a million times when I said, what up, G? Like you never called God <laughs> G. But we did it. And so those type of things, it's always fun when they work, when people laugh. Uh, and then as, as I got away from being the goofy guy and got into uh, the ring, then a lot of that stuff I came up with on my own. And, and, and so that stuff I did. But when it came to The Rock, I, I, I only made suggestions when I really thought it would help. Yeah, like when you and Bischoff worked together, I really liked that heel character you're portraying. You know, almost like a, a lackey, almost like his second. But it was great because you kind of did have some of GM, and he's the lead heel. Did you enjoy kind of being able to, you know, not not really come out of your shell, but come out of that 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 face character and really heal it up? No, it was great. It was great, and, and it was it was so funny because it, we almost tried to portray it as if I had all this authority, and we all knew that I didn't. And that I had uh, these broad shoulders, even though Eric was in charge. And Eric was so much fun to work with. And we're, you know, we still have so much respect for each other. And when I look back at all the different guys that I got to work with, it, it's such an honor and, uh, that I was able to do it. And I would, again, I would love to work with the guys from today because I'm still a, a very young guy. I, I was there in, in throughout my 20s. And I got there much younger than other people do. So to be able to do that and to have that character and to, be around a guy who ran the other big company of all time and get to the, the greatest part is, and I wish we had a show like this, that as you're sitting around during the day and you're waiting to shoot your stuff or to collaborate, you're just telling stories. And so the stories that Eric would tell us, or I would tell him, or, you know, they were amazing. And they were stories that most people will never hear. And that's the greatest part of the business to me is the storytelling and the stories that come out of it. And and I will write a book someday, and people ask me all the time because I, I have more stories in the WWE books than probably anybody, either that happened to me or that I was a part of. And to me, stories is what life is all about. When it's all said and done, all you have is moments. And I love the moments that I got to have with Eric and, and certainly The Rock and, and all those guys. But that was a very, very fun time in my career, yes. And as uh, Chad kind of alluded to before, even a moment like the mist with Tajiri, not everything gets remembered, especially due to doing backstage stuff, but stuff like that, moments like that <laughs> where you really get a good chuckle and you really, you know, have a spit take when you're drinking. Like, stuff like that really uh, stands <laughs> out. 
you remember that fondly, that, that moment with Tajiri? Uh, I remember all those. Uh, working with Tajiri was great because he was the guy I had my first match with, and I still believe to this day that he was fluent in English and pretended like he didn't understand anything. And for a guy <laughs> who lived in the States for, what, 15 years, you tell me you don't, know, you don't understand anything, but he, he was true to himself. And for that particular uh, scene backstage, we bought six different shirts because you've got to have a backup. For some reason, the take doesn't go right. But luckily, we got on the first take because getting that green mist off, it's no joke. It's not easy. And I'll never forget that as we were preparing for our match, I looked at him and I said, listen, and believe me, none of the trained superstars want to work with a relatively new guy uh, a guy that's not as trained as much, or somebody like myself, because it, it can be dangerous, right? So I remember looking at Tajiri, I was like, listen, man, I said, this is going to be awesome. As long as you let me get my shit in, we're going to be good. And he looked right at me, and he says, you have shit? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and so then Dean Malenko, who was working with us, had to explain to him what I meant, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he speaks fluent English, and he just never let on. But that's one of the funniest moments of, of my career was when he said that to me. That is, uh, that's great. He probably was, he was probably working here, or was probably messing with you. 100%, 100%. Yeah. Now, when you're actually doing the training and, you know, getting ready for the match, obviously you end up beating Tajiri, but who ends up yep. training you and getting you ready behind the scenes for a match like that? Well, it, it's something that I haven't talked about a lot, uh, maybe ever, until right now. But the, there was two people. Uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, when I was in Stanford, we would train at the facility there. But then when I was on the road, uh, I was trained by Chris Benoit. And he would come to the arena a couple hours early before our the time that we all had to be there and he was kind enough to to teach me and we did a lot of shoot fighting we did obviously a lot of bumping and I grew to uh, love and respect him a great deal and there was nobody in my mind that respected the business more than him Um, and it's obviously unfortunate uh, what happened to him and his family uh, but I I choose to remember the kind um, giving Chris Benoit that helped me uh, not hurt other people, I guess is the best way that I could say it. But he spent a lot of time with me, and for that I will always be grateful. I really appreciate you sharing that because I don't know if I've ever heard that, you know, the coach was trained by Benoit ever. Is that – yeah, um, like common knowledge to even even the boys, or is that something you guys kind of? Um, yeah, they, I mean they were all there. I mean it was we would go, we'd be on the road, and and um and he because he he was he just loved being you know he was a gym rat, and he loved being there, and he he was the guy that would get up and you know we all went out the night before he would be having breakfast at eight a.m. and at the gym by eight thirty, and we're struggling to get out of bed and get to the next town, so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Any of the guys that that were on the road back then knew that uh, that he was with me. And then we would also do. I was trying to get in really good shape, so we would do a lot of the squats that the wrestlers would do, um, which was a really good way of strengthening your legs. We'd do uh, those a lot together as well. 
obviously he's one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time. I mean, without that, one of the greatest technical wrestlers. He's just a great worker. Is that somebody Absolutely. you sought out and was like, if I want to learn how to wrestle, I got to learn from this guy? Um, no, how it, how it actually happened was uh, one of the first days that I was on the road, and, and the reason they sent me to house shows was because uh, they wanted me to get some in-ring uh, work in front of a crowd, and since I was somebody, it, it, it was it was so different than you normally would do it because normally you come up, you work the indies, you get signed, and you're fully trained. Well, I didn't have that luxury. I was already on TV and a character, so they were like, "How do we get him ring time?" But people already know who he is, so so they did the only smart thing, and they were like, "We'll get him matches at house shows that are not televised, and if I messed up or it wasn't good, uh, it wasn't the end of the world." And so I would go early, and he would be there, and he would offer up advice. and Because I would just be in there bumping by myself, just doing flips, flatbacks, things like that. And he took it because he respected the business so much that he didn't want me to embarrass the business, I believe, at his core. and But he respected me as a human being. And, and that's kind of how that relationship evolved. When you're training and getting ready, and obviously Tajiri would be the first match, do they ever give you any inkling that, like, oh, by the way, down the road you may be wrestling Goldberg or you may be wrestling Frank <laughs> do, do they ever kind of say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, we're getting you ready for something else, or they don't even lead you on, you only thought you were going to be one and done as far as wrestling? I thought it was going to be SummerSlam, and that was it, uh, 2003. And that was still one of the great nights in my life because – uh, the, the the great part about the business, and it, it doesn't happen very often, but if you can truly, truly surprise the fans, something that they don't see coming, that's the beauty. That's the reaction that you want. That's the reaction that you just want more of every single night. And that night in Phoenix when I uh, grabbed the chair and I cracked Shane McMahon four times with it, the place literally is like, what are we watching? We've never seen an announcer do that and do this. And so as we went along, it was just like, Hey, I was getting so much heat and the crowd hated me so much more than a lot of the heels that were wrestling full time. Cause it's, it's incredibly difficult to become a really good heel. It's incredibly difficult to get the crowd to truly hate you or to truly love you to get them to care. And they cared about seeing me get my ass kicked. So that's how all those things evolved over time whether it was, you know, the Dudley boys put me through the table for the first time. Um, you know, Cena put me through a table twice. Taking the Batista bomb is something that I don't recommend for anybody. And then going up against Goldberg and taking his three big moves, uh, again, is not something – you're literally a nervous wreck before you go out because it's very, very dangerous. And people need to understand that. And I was, you know, I had to be able to take all those different big finishes. And I'm, I'm, that's one of the things I'm most proud of, guys, is that, that for a guy who went there never planning on doing it, that I got to the point that not only would I do it, uh, I made it look halfway decent, and, and I walked away with the respect of the guy who did it to me. And, and that's all you want in this business. Absolutely, and it's great that you were able to get that level of, of healdom, if you will. Like the fans really, you know, took a disliking to you, obviously, which was, was the point, which was so good. 
And the fact that, you know, they could put you in there with, uh, you know, a Goldberg or something, the crowd would really react. You know, because sometimes if if there's a guy getting his uh, ass kicked in the ring, maybe they won't care. But that just goes to show you how much the crowd had invested in you in that point, too, right? That's pretty cool when you think about it. Yeah, it's, 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 as a heel, it's, it's the greatest sound that you can hear because you're doing something right. It's like being an actor and, and making the crowd that comes to the movie buy into the character that you are portraying. But yet, it's, it's, to me, it's ten times as difficult because it's a live crowd, it's a jaded crowd, and one of my biggest complaints about the wrestling crowd is that they don't know how to just enjoy themselves. Uh, they all feel like they know the business better than the guys that are actually in the business. And instead of, like, when I watch a football game, I watch it for the joy of watching a football game. And even though I played sports at a high level, I played collegiately, uh, I don't sit there and break apart the game and act like I know more about playing the NFL than Tom Brady does. But yet, for some reason, wrestling fans feel that way. And I think that's why a lot of the boys get so defensive is because there's no way a fan can know what we go through on a daily basis. You can look at the schedule. You can understand uh, the miles and the cars and the flights and all of that. It's good to talk about. It's nice to talk about. Until you live it, until you have to get to the arena, and then, oh, by the way, guys, I've got to make these fans care about my character on top of everything else. That's very, very difficult to do. It's a hard lifestyle. It's a hard thing to get over. And and I was able to, to do that, and uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Definitely. And when, when you get the chance to beat uh, Jerry the King Lawler, not many people can say that. That's got to be pretty cool too, right? <laughs> it was great working with all those guys, but he was, he was awesome too. You know, Jerry's, uh, one of those unique characters that uh, you only see in the world of wrestling. And, and he carved out a niche and uh, made a very, very nice living for himself and also became a huge star uh, in a in a very wrestling-rich um, territory like Memphis. So it was cool getting in there with him. I think I, I was in the ring with him two or three different times. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was there, there were some matches probably that people would like to forget between me and King and JR and, and, and Al Snow. Uh, but uh, what the hell, we gave it our best shot. <laughs> now, you know, i got to ask you, one of the more nerve-wracking things, I'm sure, is working uh, next to Vince McMahon in front of his camera, but how about working with Vince alongside him on camera? What's more nerve-wracking for you, the, uh, <laughs> the him watching you or him standing next to you? Um, to be honest, probably – probably him watching you because he's in a producer role when you're working with him as i did many many times he's in a talent role so he's usually watching his performance and not necessarily critiquing your performance uh when he's producing the show and there were many stretches where the mr mcmahon character was not on the show well now he's a full-time producer that is nerve-wracking and and i tell people all the time that if you can make it through a show with Vince as your producer, you can work with anybody. And I will say that, that and Vince will tell you this too, that um, I'm one of the guys because I never said no. I did everything he asked. And I, I could also probably do more different jobs than anybody else too. And that's part of the reason that I was always around him 
Uh, I was one, you know, I went to Afghanistan and I was in his group the entire way. Uh, he called me once on Christmas Eve. I had to fly back here on Christmas Day to shoot something at the office with him, and they knew that I would say yes. And and that respect factor grew and even grew bigger once I got to ESPN and was able to get the business uh, on ESPN as well. So me and him have a, a great relationship. I learned a lot from him, uh, and he is by far, without question, not close the most intimidating human being uh, you can ever hope to be around. So I guess if Vince flubbed the line, you didn't really elbow him and be like, wow, you really messed that one up there, Vince. You didn't uh, get that comfortable. <laughs> no, I would rib him a little bit. I mean, we were very comfortable <laughs> with each other. And, 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 you know, the thing about him, he's very, very loyal and loyal to a fault that a lot of people don't realize. And he knew I was one of his guys. And I'm still one of his guys 18 years later. And he knows that. He could call me tonight and say, hey, we're going to shoot something in an hour, and I'm in the car. That's just there are certain people in your life that you want to always respect. And he is a man that I will always respect for not only what he's built, uh, not always how he treated me, but he treats you tough. And if he's tough on you, that means he respects you. If you put you on his show, that's his baby. And you need to understand that and look at the big picture instead of sometimes I think people are way too soft and blame him way too much. And that's something in my entire time there. Uh, there were a few bumps in the road, but I never blamed him for anything. And uh, and a lot of guys can't say that. Now, how about the stories about Vince in your ear? And obviously he's giving you the, uh, you know, the, some of the bullets that you're going to need. He's going to be talking you through some of the, the, the points he wants you to hit. A lot of guys have come out and said that that's a little difficult now, did you ever get distracted by Vince saying something to you, or did you just accept that as his role and what he's doing in producing a show from uh, his spot back there at the gorilla position? Did, did Vince talks in our ear? I, I I don't know that I've ever heard anybody actually talk. D- does that happen? Where have you heard that? Oh my gosh! It, it, it <laughs> seems like it's a uh, it seems like it's a common uh, occurrence with certain guys that get rattled. Uh, when they're doing their commentary. Now, I could be wrong that yeah. I've never had Vince in my ear, so I, well, I could be uh, hypothet- Hypothetically speaking, uh, if Vince were to talk to people in their ear, and I'm not saying that he does, but if he <laughs> were to, um, distraction would probably be uh, an understatement if that were to happen. And you can get to a point I'm assuming where you could probably repeat what he says if he were to say it within a half a second or a second. And if you didn't, I would assume that he would get mad if you didn't say what hypothetically he might be telling you. <laughs> you know, I got a uh, I got a bachelor's degree in reading between the lines, so I completely <laughs> understand where you're going with that. And, and kind of, you know, and, and in taking that that transition that you did and being, it's almost like it was seamless. You went from being uh, a face commentator to a heel commentator, and obviously we've talked about all the matches and all the the stuff that you did. But what did you find to be the most challenging part of being the coach? Was it the fact that you know you are a nice guy, and I always had heard you know outside of the arena the coach would be able to sign an autograph, the coach would always be uh, friendly to the fans. Now, what was the hardest part about being the character, the coach? Uh, the physical stuff. The the I, I respect the guys. I respect the business. And and you know, 
I, I, I wanted things to look as good as possible, and I still do. And I want to be the best at what I do. And so for me, uh, those guys are so good. And I think sometimes being a part of them and being one of them, uh, you forget. It's like when you watch a baseball uh, game and then you go to a double-A game. It's very clear that you're watching double-A players. I was with major league players every single day. And when you are and, and you've got to be on their level, and I found that very, very uh, nerve-wracking at times uh, because they're the absolute best at what they do. Um, so that, that was my, the, the talking part. I feel like I'm still one of the best talkers uh, in the business today, uh, whether it's the sports business, whether it's the sports entertainment business. Uh, I think there's very few people that are better on the mic than I am. Uh, the physical part was very, very difficult for me. Um, and it wasn't because I thought I was going to get hurt. It was just the doing it and we're performing a movie five feet from people. And um, they're the toughest crowd of any sports or sports entertainment uh, company in the world. So for me, it's it's not close. That was easily the hardest thing I ever did. And you're very modest. I'm going to say it. you're very modest about what you did in the ring because – you know, you had all these great matches or, you know, you had these great interactions and what turned into matches, but it's kind of mind-boggling to also think you've been in two Royal Rumbles as well. So, I mean, the physical <laughs> yeah. aspect for you, albeit hard, man, you were, you were in there. I mean, it, it, you were in there with the, yeah. uh, the, the snake pit of tough guys. Well, it, it's funny because my first uh, Royal Rumble, what, what helped my character is, is I suggested, I said, I said for you know, I'm, I'm braggadocious. I like to brag about things, my character anyway. And, I said, if I can somehow stay in the Royal Rumble for a long time, then that's something that nobody can take away from me. I could use that in future promos. So they bought it, right? So I was in the first my, my first Royal Rumble for 37 minutes, and there were only five people left when I got eliminated. And I think that one I got eliminated by Ric Flair and the other one by Big Show. Or was one, it was, those were the two guys, and I'm just going to remember which one it was. But – to be eliminated by those two guys, now you got to learn how do I go over the top rope and not get hurt. So that was another thing I had to learn because that's just not something that, that everybody knows how to do, right? So I'll never forget, and this is a story I've never told until your show, but Hardcore Holly, who was probably the, the toughest human being I've ever interacted with in my life, and we're in the room, we're going over the Royal Rumble, and they basically say, you know, the first 10 guys who are eliminated, you guys can leave. And I turned to Hardcore, and he was one of those guys that said, yeah, Hardcore, get to stepping. He stands up, and I've got both of my legs straight out in front of me with, like, my, my feet crossed. And he kicks me with his toe so hard in the side of my thigh that I could barely go out to the Royal Rumble that night. They almost had to take me out because I had a knot in my leg so big that I could hardly walk because he was so mad that I had made fun of him that he kicks me straight in the side of the leg, and I was almost in tears. This dude was no joke. And we once woke him up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he was one of those guys that woke up every two hours to eat and protein shakes and all these kinds of things. So another guy called and gave me the phone, and we were at a bar, and he knew it was the off hour for him to wake up. And he literally says to me, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. This is hardcore. He's out hurt. I don't see him for three or four months. And all of a sudden, I'm working up in the, in the arena, and the lights go out. Somebody chokes me out from behind, and it was hardcore. 
And he says, I told you the next time I saw you, I was going to kill you. And he literally choked me out like I was out cold. And then he's <laughs> like, don't ever do that again. For calling him on the wrong hour in the middle of the night, I got choked out. True stories. That's, uh, that sounds like uh, our buddy Bob Holly. Absolutely. He, uh, <laughs> he, he's an intense guy. I'll tell you what, and his, he doesn't like to hear it, but he has – He's a he's a sweetheart when he uh, when he kind of gets into it. He, yeah, he, he really is. is. He he became one of my best friends. But don't piss him off. Do not people piss him off. <laughs> yeah, especially uh, don't tell him to get to stepping. But uh, that's going to be a note to self for uh, for the next time <laughs> we're around Bob Holly uh, and see if he uh, if that actually happens. But you know, you think about guys that weren't even in Royal Rumbles, like a guy like Scott Hall was never in the Royal Rumble match. Itself. Wow. But I think you were wow. in too, yeah. That's, uh, wow. that's yeah. a pretty yeah. big... Was... And I tell people all the time, they, the, the, the one that I was in for 37 minutes, and they kind of just tell you if you're not in the spotlight, they kind of kill time. And so Chris Jericho, Val Venus, Edge, and Chris Benoit got together before the match, unbeknownst to me, and they're like, you know what would be funny? It's if we just chop coach repeatedly uh, <laughs> while we're just killing time. So I ended up taking, and a lot of times I wasn't on camera or I was holding on to the bottom rope. I took 34 chops in that Royal Rumble. And I was like, man, I'm the man. I get out. I'm walking. I feel good. I get back. I put the shower on. The shower water hits my chest. And I screamed like the littlest girl you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) It was absolutely minced hamburger was my chest. And all four guys just teed off on me. And those, I would say Jericho and Benoit and Val Venus, that was one of their patented things they loved to do was the chop. So they had really good chops. And I took them for, you know, 37 minutes. It was incredibly painful. And I will never forgive them or forget it. But that means that they like you, Coach, because if they're uh, getting together they, to uh, – they, they show it in their own unique way, though, but they, they definitely like right. you if they're doing that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, I'm mentioning Scott Hall there. I just, I'm, I'm thinking of things as, you, as we're talking. And, and when the Scott Hall and the NWO came back in in 2002, obviously you were there. Now, do you recall any kind of, uh, any kind of manufactured heat for these guys coming into the company after being in WCW? Because you were there for a lot of that WCW war at the end. But do you remember when the yeah. NWO oh, yeah. came back? Was, that, was there oh, actual well, I mean, heat guys, backstage? Oh. oh, yeah, guys were pissed. Well, it wasn't heat because of the two companies because everybody uh, it was essentially friends. But what, what pissed people off is that uh, guys like Scott Hall had a million chances and kept screwing up. And he would make all this money and continue to screw up. And I'll never forget that we were in Vegas. uh, And then since it got pushed back a week because of 9-11, we happened to be in L.A. the next day. So we drive to L.A. and they were in the hotel when I got there eating with the big show. And I had never met Nash and Hall. So so I meet them, introduce myself, and go to bed. The next morning, you know, it's the Marriott there at LAX. And I walk down to go to the gym. And there's Scott Hall, as high as he could be, asking anybody and everybody where's the gym is and embarrassing himself. And he lasted maybe two weeks before they realized he can't be a part of this. And I think now, and, and got, you know, somehow he's still walking above ground and apparently is, is getting his life together somewhat. 
because he's a really good guy. But this is a guy that had demons upon demons upon demons. And I saw it the very first day when Vince was giving them a chance of a lifetime to come back and be together, be a part of that. And and Scott Hall couldn't even make it one day uh, without not being sober. And it was embarrassing to see him that way on a Monday morning before they even made it onto TV that night. That was such a crazy time. I mean, that that whole comeback, it, it almost feels like it came out of nowhere. Uh, but after yeah. the invasion angle and WCW closing and, and WWF being the uh, the grand poobah of, uh, of wrestling at, at that point, the NWO's return was huge, but then Hogan's return was huge. So kind of talk us through that. What was that like seeing the reemergence of Hulkamania and seeing him and the Rock square off. Obviously, you mentioned the promo before about getting down on your knees, yeah. uh, praying to uh, to the G up there. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, what, what was it like seeing that return of Hulkamania at that point? First of all, dealing with Hulk because one of the things I did on the road was uh, what we call the pre-tapes room. So I was in charge of uh, doing all the interviews for Entertainment Tonight, Access Hollywood, those type of things. And so I had a full locker room to myself with my crew. And Hogan would always come in because he wanted to dress by himself. Because back in the day, he had his own dressing room. And now we're in the early 2000s. Nobody had their own dressing room. So Hogan would be in with us. So I got to be around him. And this is one of my childhood heroes. This is one of my guys that I would take a nap on Saturday so I could stay up and watch the main event uh, before I had to go to church on Sunday morning. So to be around him uh, was incredible. And just to, to think of all the different stories and matches that he had, and then when, when he and The Rock finally got together and they decided it was going to go down, it's the only match to this day that I have ever walked out and watched in its entirety on the floor of an arena or a stadium. And the fact that they were able to go for 45 minutes uh, says a lot about The Rock and how he's able to carry Hogan. And Hogan will tell you that. Hogan had three moves. That's it. And they had that crowd, which had been waiting an entire lifetime, to see these two mega powers go at it and to just be a part of it in a small way and be a part of that DVD, to be a part of that pay-per-view uh, was a, a true honor for me. And, and that's something nobody can ever take away. And it should have been the last match of the night. And people forget that it wasn't. Uh, Jericho and Triple H was. And it was very anticlimactic because the end of Rock and Hogan – was magical, and I think it surprised a lot of people. Uh, but it wouldn't have mattered who won. Those two guys just being in the ring together was a dream come true for wrestling fans from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. It was just awesome. A lot of people forget uh, a lot of that Triple H and Chris Jericho feud revolved around uh, the murdering of Triple H's dog that a lot of people forget that <laughs> that was a part of the build-up for a, uh, a world title match. I choose for, to forget. Uh, I choose to forget. Yeah. <laughs> I choose to forget. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, two nights later would be the Hulk Hogan, I believe it was Montreal, where you, you guys were in Montreal, and the 20-minute ovation that Hogan got that brought him to tears in the ring as he was just trying to get the crowd to kind of quiet down so he could start his promo. It was an amazing, amazing time to be a wrestling fan. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I'm, I, I those, those first two years were, um, maybe as good as it gets. And and that's why I said there was literally 15 guys that were main event level. And to be there for the end of Hulkamania, to be there essentially for the end of the Rock's era, 
to be there for the end of Stone Cold's era. Uh, you know, those are things that I'll never forget. Uh, with all that being said, the greatest night that I ever had as far as filling the crowd, and and it's hard to explain to people what filling the ovation or filling the crowd feels like to your body and, and, and what goes through your body. It's, it's, it's nothing that you can explain. But the best night for me was when Triple H got hurt and he tore his entire quad, and he still finished the match. Uh, shows incredible toughness to go an extra 20 minutes when your entire quad muscle is ripped off the bone, and then you spend six months rehabbing, and it's the beauty of hyping something, and it's the anticipation, guys, and that's what the business is truly all about. And they hyped Triple H's return to, to, to Madison Square Garden, and the show went to 11.06 every week. It's 11.02. They go to break. And the crowd is waiting, 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 and there's an electricity. And then they come back from break, and they hit his music. And he wasn't wrestling. It was just him and jeans and his jean jacket. And he came out. And I I would almost bet any amount of money that it's the greatest and loudest and most electric ovation that that building, which has had some of the greatest events in the world, has ever seen. It was that incredible of a moment. And that's the word I love to use, moments. And I guarantee you, when you see Triple H's life story, he's going to go back to that moment, I promise you, and tell you it's the greatest moment of his career. And everybody, and we're from the New York area, so I re- we know you, we could count, you know, 15 people that we knew that were in the building for that ovation. And obviously, yeah, one of the more uh, emotional moments in WWE history. But also, i got to be selfish here, and John and I were sitting next to each other at this show, and you were in the broadcast booth for it, but when Hulk Hogan came back to Madison Square Garden unannounced in 2005 in his Shawn Michaels-Muhammad Hassan feud, your call of that is unbelievable, but I felt that night that the roof was going to blow off Madison Square Garden. Wow. I, yeah, I'd completely forgotten that I called that match, to be honest with you. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of fuzzy years in there for me. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm playing, but... Uh, you, you want to talk about real heat, Muhammad uh, Hassan uh, and Tajiri, not Tajiri, what was his sidekick's name? I can't Dabari. remember right now. Davari. Uh, Those guys, and not only did they have real heat in the ring, boy, they had real heat outside of the ring, and I don't think I've ever felt sorrier for a young a young talent than I did for Muhammad uh, Hassan. It was, it was really, really rough for him uh, because he got thrown into the deep end um, in and out of the ring, and it was a very, very difficult circumstance for him, and I really sincerely felt bad for him. Now, as we start to wind it down here with the coach, what was your favorite aspect of being a part of wrestling, being a part of the business? Was it the wrestling, which was obviously a lot of physical toll? Was it the announcing? Was it the backstage interviewing? What was your favorite part of it? My, my favorite part is something you guys will never see, uh, and it, it's very hard to explain in a very short period of time, but the, the time from 1 o'clock in the afternoon until 6 o'clock in the evening, uh, just the fun that we had, uh, all the different people, the, the announcers, the crew, the talent, and the things that we would do. We were, we were glorified six-year-olds, six and we, we would do things. I'll tell you a very, very quick story to kind of give you an idea of the stupid stuff that we would do. There was a ring announcer named Tony Chimmel, and he once popped off that he could beat me in a mile race. Well, who, who runs a mile when you're a grown-ass adult? Well, we decided we were going <laughs> to bet, 
and we had a six-week, we called it a pay-per-view run. So we had six weeks to train. Tony Chimmel had a secret benefactor, which turned out to be Shane McMahon, was buying him new shoes and sweatsuits and all this sort of thing. He lost 40 pounds in, in the two months that we trained, and it was at Penn State, at State College. We had press conferences. Uh, Michael Cole and The Rock did the, uh, the uh, announcing for it. We had four cameras out on uh, golf carts that were shooting it. We put together this big package that lives somewhere today, and it's me and Tony Chimmel. I had to beat him by a minute. And I ran like a 6.02. He ran a 6.05. I only beat him by like two or three seconds. And that went over a span of two months. Who does that? But it was so <laughs> much fun, and everybody was a part of it. We invited fans out. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They stood on the outside of the track. All the guys stood on the inside of the track. And the bet was this. Whoever lost had to say he was the other one's bitch one push-up at a time. And so for the next three to four years, on airplanes, at the Pentagon, at uh, a big event for Sergeant Slaughter, I had, whenever Tony Chimmel made me, one push-up at a time, I had to say, I'm Tony Chimmel's bitch. And that was <laughs> one of the great, great things that we did that was as stupid as they come, but everybody got into it. And those are the memories, man. Those are the times playing playing cards in the shower so you didn't get caught by Vince when he walked into the room to see who was in that particular locker room. Those are the things that I'll remember that were the best times because we all just hung out together. And it didn't matter if you were the top talent or you're setting up the ring. It didn't matter. And that's what I remember the most. Awesome stuff. Awesome story with uh, Tony Chimmel. It's pretty shocking to hear anybody say that they're Tony Chimmel's bitch. I got to be honest. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had, which is amazing, besides obviously the, the announcing aspect or the interview aspect, the match aspect is just amazing. You think, just really, for example, think about it. You wrestled Goldberg, Flair, Michaels, mm. Foley, Triple H, uh, Lashley. Yeah. You know, do you yeah. have a, a favorite match that kind of sticks out more than others, or maybe a couple favorite matches that really stick out to you? Um, the the Ric Flair match does because it happened in Afghanistan. And I talked about it the other day on my little Periscope show, but the, the beauty of Ric Flair is that he he treated he, – he wanted to give, right? He's a giver. And I remember when they said, we need an extra match, Coach, you're going to take on Rick because we need – uh, to add one, and I walked up to him and I said, "Rick, looks like it's going to be me and you, as if I was Triple H or Shawn Michaels or something." And he looked right up at me. He's lacing up his boots. He's like, "All right, let's call it out there." <laughs> and I'm like, "Rick, <laughs> we can't call it out there. I'm not Hunter. I'm not Shawn Michaels." And I was supposed to take the figure four, and I ended up taking the figure two. It was awful. They had to to edit around it because I took it so poorly, uh, but. Rick never said anything. It never bothered him. He treated me as if I was those guys. And and plus it was in a war zone. And so that one sticks out. And I think my my first match against Tajiri uh, sticks out too because that's something I never in my wildest dreams as a kid growing up, as a sports fan, as a wrestling fan, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd ever have a match that, you know, certainly that lasted longer than 30 or 40 seconds. And that one was, you know, 12 minutes, 14 minutes. And um, and, and that one was cool, too. So 
Uh, and then and then going through my first table. I'll always remember that, taking the 3D and going through my first table. So probably those three are, are right up there. We're talking about moments and big moments. Obviously, there was a couple with The Rock that really stuck out. In front of the camera moments, not not behind the scenes, because those are, you know, obviously a lot of good ones, and being Tony Chimmel's bitch is, is, is one thing. But what were some of your favorite moments, you know, without, you know, saying The Rock or something or one of the stories we talked about, what are other, some of your favorite moments that happened out there as far as in front of the camera? Um, I, I think when... I, I think some of the Stone Cold stuff was great. When when I wore the cowboy hat and he put a beer in it and then put it back on my head, uh, that was that was cool. Uh, I'll I'll tell you, you know, when you're growing up, you never imagine that you'll ever be made into a an action figure. Or uh, when you get there, you know, the day they called me in and said. Uh, to the arena and they said, Hey, we're going to play your music for the first time. And I had my own music. And then, uh, then I got a, a second music that actually made it onto a CD. And so those are moments that you sit there and, and they're playing your entrance video in front of everybody. And you're like, wow, they're, they're doing this for me. And that takes effort and time of the company to do that for you. Those are moments that, that I'll remember. And, uh, you know, when, when they came out with the, the, the hottest selling to this day, uh, action figure set I'm a part of. And I say all the time it's because it's, it's because I'm in it, but it's probably because Triple H and Shawn Michaels are the other two guys in the trio. Uh, those are moments that, that, that I'll always remember happen at, at the arena and happen, uh, you know, in front of people. And then, you know, times when Brock Lesnar's brand new and he calls out Kurt Angle. That's something people have never seen. Uh, that's just myth. Well, I was there. I saw it. And and so those are those are things that that happen um, organically because you're talking about grown ass men and women who have huge egos and huge bodies and uh, things happen and and so I I think for those reasons you know I say all the time I'm proud of the fact that I lasted ten years most people don't because it's just too difficult and and I did and but and and because I lasted ten years and because I was part of so many different cliques. Uh, that's probably why I have the most stories, I would guess. So those are probably the stories I remember uh, the most. And the one I told the other day, because Kurt Angle and Shane McMahon are front and center now for their two different shows, the night that, that they wrestled. And I'll never forget, I was about 10 feet away when Kurt Angle belly-to-belly Shane McMahon through the glass, and the glass didn't break, and he landed on his head four times. And they kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I was like, this this is the craziest human being I've ever met in my life. And that's who Shane McMahon is. That's just who Shane McMahon is. And that's the craziest thing physically I've ever seen right in front of me. Crazy King. That was King of the Ring. Oh, one. I was actually there live. And that was absolutely nuts. And it's funny to think 16 years later or so that they're kind of rekindling that feud with this raw versus yeah. SmackDown. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Do you still follow intently the close? Um, I do. I took a long wrestling? time off. I, I, I took a long time off. But now uh, that I'm making a transition away from ESPN and, and I'm starting to control uh, my content and what I do, and, and, and once I'm able to announce what my next venture is, certainly everybody will know. But there's I'm going to be doing three or four different things. And it just got to a point at ESPN 
where they didn't want to embrace, you know, my big my background WWE and they 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 want to have their toe in the water but they don't want to have both feet in and that becomes very very frustrating. And uh so I've started watching it again intently because to keep my uh, uh skills sharp, I started a show on Periscope and Twitter every single day and it's just 30 minutes talking about three or four different topics and depending on the day depends on what we talk about. So I watch Raw every week. I watch SmackDown. And uh, I think there's a part of me now that I'm I'm free and no longer under contract. Cause when you're at ESPN, they own you. And they tell you what you can and cannot do. And and I, I miss performing outside of the studio. And and I don't know if I'll ever go back there. I don't know if I'll ever uh, do anything with them again. But I want to have the freedom to do it. Uh, so certainly I've started watching it again a lot lately. Just so if for some reason – I'm called upon, then I'm ready to go. We always had, as wrestling fans, a lot of pride watching you uh, do your thing. And uh, it was definitely, it's very cool to see you come back to uh, WWE TV uh, not too long ago and, and have your, uh, your your couple of segments there. And it was great to have you back. And, Coach, i got to tell you something. This was absolutely an amazing, uh, a little over an hour that we spent here going back down memory lane, but the way we like to end it on this show, before we get into the big okay. plug before we do all that stuff, the way we like to end it is when you look back at what the coach has done <laughs> so far in professional wrestling, but also in broadcasting, I guess we could, we could talk yep. broadcasting. And when the book is closed on Jonathan Coachman and the coach, what do you want wrestling fans to remember about what you left in the business? Well, I, I, I feel like only half the story has been written. Uh, but when I look back, and, and, and I want fans to understand and realize, um, I guess how special my career has been because I'm very proud of it. And I'm still the only person and probably will be for a very long time uh, on the face of the planet. And really think about that for a second. That has ever been the voice of Monday Night Raw, been the voice of Sports Center and done both at the highest level for two of the biggest, uh, if not the two biggest sports and sports entertainment companies in the world. Uh, many people told me 10 years ago that it could not be done. And I think it's a testament to the skill level in the WWE and also my skill level with sports. So I think when the book is closed, hopefully 30 years from now, uh, people will look back at me as somebody who had uh, a lot of talent uh, had a lot of different kind of skills and also made a lot of people laugh, uh, made a lot of people smile, um, and made a lot of people uh, realize uh, what's possible if you just put yourself out there and try. And that's all I've ever tried to do is be the best at whatever I've been asked to do. And um, so for me, it's pretty simple. Give a great effort, uh, and at the end of the day, that's all I can ask. And I hope that's what people remember about me whether it's at ESPN or uh with the WWE that I just gave it everything I had and I had fun doing it uh, they can feel all that emotion not just from watching your career but listening to this interview because we hit everything the uh the hilarity you know the intensity of the of being in the ring and all the great stuff in between and coach this has been so much fun for us to to walk back down memory lane with you but before we let you go please share with the listeners of the two-man power chip of wrestling, where they can find anything and everything in the world of the coach, Jonathan Coachman. <laughs> well, I wish I could give you more information, but I, I can tell you this. Uh, right now, the only place you can see me 
very temporarily is every single day on Periscope or Twitter, I do, like I said, my little 30-minute, 40-minute show. Uh, but but uh, very, very soon uh, I will have uh, two announcements that are locked in, and there's a third one that's almost done. And they're all different, unique, very, very cool opportunities that um, I really got to watch myself here. Uh, that that span the gamut of of entertainment, and when you see what I'm talking about, you'll understand. And I could not be more excited about what I'm getting ready to do moving forward. It's very cryptic of you, but also very, very, very intriguing. And I guess and believe me, the- I'm, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be coy. Or I just I just physically can't say anything yet. Uh, but it, it's 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 going to be fun, and and I'm definitely excited to be out of ESPN. I can tell you that. So it's not going to be the battle of the WWE Network stars, you versus Tony Chimmel in the rematch of all rematches. No, 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 <laughs> it, it will it will not be. I can promise you that. But it 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 will be in entertainment in several different ways. I'll put it that way. Well, Coach, whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be amazing, and you'll have all the wrestling fans behind you, as usual, because when we see one of our own out in the wild, we tend to support them pretty, uh, pretty, pretty incredibly. So we will be watching that. And, Coach, again, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Guys, thank you, me. This is, thank you, and thanks for having me on. And, and, and it's people like you that allow us to do this and, and, and also spend this time, which is always fun to do. Uh, every now and then. So uh, the, the the pleasure was all mine. The honor was all mine. Keep up the great work. We, uh, keep being fans. And, and maybe we can do this again uh, a couple years down the line and, uh, and talk about uh, what I've done the last couple of years at that point. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.